If you will, this morning, take your copy of God's Word and open this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is where we'll be today. And uh, I got to tell you that um, throughout studying this week, knowing that I was coming to this topic um, in dealing with the whole what happens in salvation, what happens, what does God do throughout the whole, whole gamut of, of uh, being saved, I knew coming to being filled with the Spirit was going to be this big topic. <laughs> I had no idea really how big. So to, today, I got to tell you that I'll start this sermon this morning and I'll finish it tonight. Now, we will take a break in between. Uh, we, we won't stay till tonight. Right? But uh, anyway, we, uh, I, there's no way I'll get through this. And I will in no way answer all the questions that you have about the Holy Spirit. Um, I will tell you that, for the most part, Southern Baptists have probably done a poor job with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Not to say that we should run to some of the things that other denominations have, but we've probably shied away from it way too much. I shouldn't say it. We've, we've shied away from Him way too much. This third member of the Trinity, God himself, deserves our attention. And so let's, let's look at him and what it means to be filled with the Spirit this morning. Let's, let's read this, then we'll pray, and then I'll preach. Let's, let's uh, read this together. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Ephesians five eighteen says, And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. God, this morning I come to this text feeling so inadequate. God, I pray that you would take this text and, God, that you would breathe life into it. God, in the same way that that I am dependent on you for everything, I am so dependent on you right now to preach through me in the next few minutes. God, I pray that you would speak, you would make it clear, God, that you would call us to respond, and God, that we because of your grace, would respond in obedience, Lord, that you would build your church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I studied through this and I kind of finished a lot of my study and kind of put the finishing touches on the sermon yesterday, um, I study all week long and, I, and I, I notoriously, I just always come to Saturday and I've still got more left to do. And um, as I was finished up and I, I left the coffee shop and I was driving back home, I, I was in the car and I was, I was just praying. I said, God, I, I don't know that I can get all this in. God, I don't know that I can, I can achieve all that I really need to achieve in this sermon. And then I got to thinking about it. God just brought to my mind, how do I achieve anything? I started thinking about actually speaking. <laughs> you ever, do, do you think about speaking while you're speaking? Have you ever thought about what it takes? I mean, I, I was in my car and I was thinking, you know, I, I don't know how that works. I, I open my mouth and words come out. And it's more than just air and noise. They, 
they, they form vowels and syllables and all these things and, and, and I communicate somehow. I don't understand how that happens. And God just kind of said, shut up. You know, just, just quit worrying. You know, I, you can't even figure out how the words come out of your mouth. So now that you've studied and now that you've prayed, just open your mouth and I'll take care of the rest. And it's really a picture of what we are to do, not just me as a preacher or a pastor, but for all of us who call ourselves by the name of Christ. Those of us who follow Christ and we are Christians, we are to depend completely on him. And I want you to understand a little bit more about what that is. The first part, I just want to walk through this text together. The first part is, is, uh, is the part where you probably caught your attention. A lot of preachers have paused here and never gone on to the rest of it. But the very first part says, and do not get drunk with wine. And, uh, and I, I don't think we should. Uh, but since Paul says, do not, it infers that there were Christians in that day that were. By the very fact that he has to tell them, do not get drunk with wine, meant that there were some that still were. And the reality is, there are still those today who are getting drunk with wine. I don't want this to be a sermon about the dangers of alcohol. But alcohol very is very dangerous. And here, the, the Bible, Paul here writing this says, do not get drunk with wine. I want to warn you a little bit about the perils of alcohol this morning. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Wine or alcohol or hard liquor or beer or whatever it is has a tendency to lead you astray. It has a tendency to take you out of your right mind. It has a tendency to mock you. There's a tendency, some you've, you've been around, hopefully you've not had a lot of experience around drunks, but if you have, you know that typically drinking alcohol causes uh, one of, of a few reactions. Some people become very, very loving. Others, though, become hateful and fighters. And that's what Proverbs 20 verse 1 is talking about, that wine is a brawler. And many of you are sitting in this room today and you know that from personal experience, either from your own participation with it or growing up in a household with a father or a mother or a grandparent or an uncle or someone who abused alcohol. And you know all too well how alcohol is a brawler. In Genesis chapter 9, we see the account of after the flood, when Noah has gotten off of the ark, he and his wife and his sons and their wives have come off of the ark. He plants a vineyard and he begins to raise grapes and then he makes wine. And it says that he drank the wine and became drunk. And he didn't just become a little buzzed. He became drunk to the point where he passed out without any clothes on. And the Bible says that his son, Ham, walked in and saw him passed out naked. And the Bible says that it... it it infers that he points and laughs. That he goes out and he gets his other two brothers and he tells them, you should see our father. And he mocks his father. And the other brothers, they 
don't laugh, but they take a blanket or a cloak of some sort and they put it over their shoulders and they back in and they cover their father without looking on his nakedness. But the point is well taken that wine is a mocker. That it will make you do things that you would normally not do. You will make a fool of yourself. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed drink. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of the mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt, but they beat me and I did not feel it. This is what wine does to you. This is what alcohol does to you. There's nobody like a sad drunk. There's nobody like an angry drunk. He says here in this proverb, he says, don't look at wine when it's red and sparkles in the cup. Have you ever noticed how all of the commercials for beer or liquor or whatever it is, they show you the person before. They show you how it looks in the glass and how everyone's having a great time and it's affected nobody with ill effects. It is, it is a wonderful thing. Everyone should just gather around and grab some buds and let's celebrate. But they never show you the end product. They never show you the person passed out. They never show you the car accident. They never show you the, the wife at home taking care of the children or if the wife is still there or the children who suffer from the neglect of not having a father around or, or whatever it is. They don't show you any of that. And that's what Proverbs says here is don't look at it when it sparkles in the cup because in the end it strikes, it bites like a viper. It will sting, it will kill. It will make you see strange things, things that are not there. It will make you say things that are perverse, things that you normally wouldn't say. It makes you sick, like seasickness. i got to tell you, the sickest I've ever been was on a deep sea fishing trip. And I have vowed never to go deep sea fishing again. Um, but that's what it makes you feel like. Not for everyone. Some can take it in and tolerate it and seem to have a good time, but it will have ill effects. And the point here is not that we would linger in and focus in on the first phrase of Ephesians 5.18 and just talk about the damaging effects of alcohol. The point that he's making is this is no condition for a Christian. This is no way for a Christian to behave or to live. That's why he goes on and he says, for that is debauchery. I got to admit to you, I didn't know what debauchery meant when I came across that. So I had to go and look it up. And what it means is simply an inappropriate behavior. Debauchery is behaving in a way that's not fitting the person who is doing the behavior. And so what he's saying is, for a child of God who he's writing to, a Christian in the church of God, a believer, to be drunk with wine is not fitting. 
It is inappropriate. It takes you out of your right mind. And what God wants is God wants you to be in your right mind. Not in the mind that is your flesh, but in your spiritual mind. The mind that is being renewed and transformed in you through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what Titus 1.6 is talking about. It also talks about debauchery. Titus 1.6 says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He's giving Titus here a list of qualifications to look for in a man to be an elder or a pastor in the churches of the area. If the man's children behave inappropriately, he's disqualified. Kind of puts pressure on you guys over there, Makai and Abby. But they're kids. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4, goes on and talks more about this issue of debauchery. It says, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Some of you have come out of a background of drinking parties and alcoholism and drugs and all these other things, and you still know some of your old buddies. And some of them you can be around and some of them you can't. And when you don't join in with them like you used to, they don't understand What you understand is that is no longer behavior that is fitting for your new nature. For your new position. Because you have been justified. You have been adopted into the family of God. You are in the process of being sanctified. So no longer can you go where you once went or do what you once did. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I am writing to you not to associate... With anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul's pretty clear here that there is no place for getting drunk with wine in the life of a Christian. Tells other Christians, don't have anything to do with them if they call themselves brother. Why? Because it's not fitting. And it's not a judgmental thing where we shun them and push them out. It is a loving thing where we shun them to the point that they see the danger of what they are in. And they repent and are restored to right relationship. That's the point. But as I studied this, and I studied this in the context of being filled with the Spirit, I I thought to myself, why? Why did he simply... Hone in on being drunk with wine. And I I think the point is this, that being drunk with wine, while it is wrong, it is simply one of the ways in which many people, many Christians, depend on something else other than the Holy Spirit in their lives. There are Christians today that that are seeking guidance and seeking fulfillment 
in not only the bottle, but also in entertainment, in money, in the things that come with money. They're seeking to be fulfilled and to have purpose in their life from their job, through the relationships that they have, from sexual escapades. People are seeking this from routine or tradition, old habits of our former lives. I think, hear me on this, there's a quietness in the room, hear me. Being drunk with wine is simply one of the ways that we depend on something other than God. So do not, in this room, say, well, you know, I, I, I don't struggle with that. And you, your head begins to kind of tilt back. And you begin to look down your nose at those who might. This is not about coming to a place where you are morally superior. This is a point, this is about all of us coming to a point where we are utterly dependent on the right thing, on the Holy Spirit of God. This is him saying, do not be drunk with wine. Is simply saying, get rid of all of these things that take your focus, your attention, your dependence off of the Holy Spirit of God. And then he goes on and he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be filled? Is, is this what we think it means? Well, the word or the phrase to be filled is a word that is a present imperative. What it means is it's not a one-time feeling. It's not a one-time event where the Holy Spirit comes into your life. When here he says, be filled, what he's saying is continually be in the, in the state of being filled. It's a repeated event. doesn't happen just once. Well then, what about those who teach that there is this second experience? There are denominations that teach that, that unless you have had this second experience of the Spirit coming in and resulting in you speaking in tongues, then you don't really have the Holy Spirit. And that's just not true. The reality is, in Acts chapter 2, it did happen that way. In Acts chapter 2, at, at Pentecost, they were all gathered together. They prayed together. Tongues of fire were, were, were appeared above their heads. They began to speak in other languages. The people of the, the city came and gathered together, and they all heard the gospel in their own language. Pentecost was a festival, and there were people from all over the region gathered together, and people from all these different Areas speaking all their languages heard their particular language from men and women who were not from where they were from. So how do you explain that other than this was when the Spirit came? They were saved and then the Spirit came and it resulted in them speaking in tongues. Well, the re reality is that while that did happen in Acts chapter 2, I don't believe that it was ever meant to be prescriptive for you and I. I don't, I don't believe that it was meant to be the standard of what happens to the believer. Y'all with me on this? All right, because y'all are... Let me, let me shock you just a little bit. As a Baptist pastor, I'm not willing to say that the gift of tongues has ceased. Now, do I speak in tongues? No. 
But my sister, who I love, who I grew up with, who went to the same church that I went to, was taught the same things growing up that I was taught, claims that she has had this experience and had disability given to her. And am, am I to call her a liar? Am I to call the thousands of others throughout history a liar? When Scripture nowhere says that it has indeed ceased? So I'm not saying that it ceased. I just don't think that it is prescriptive in that it has to be the case or the experience of every believer in order for them to truly be saved. It was a transitional miracle between the Old Covenant of the, of the Old Testament and the New Covenant of Jesus' coming. There was a transitional period, and I, and I believe in that particular case, it was validation to what was happening. But we should not run out of here and seek that in order to be filled, we've got to seek this gift of tongues. The Bible teaches that every Christian, every Christian receives all of the Holy Spirit. At true conversion. It's what Romans 8 verse 9 is talking about when it says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you have been justified and adopted into the family of God, the Spirit of God has come into you. He dwells within you. It's what happens at conversion. So everybody who is a believer has the Spirit. So then, what does the Bible mean when it says to be filled? When, when Paul here tells us, be filled, as this imperative, this command, be filled. What does he mean? Does he mean that somehow, while we were given all of the Holy Spirit at conversion, does it mean that somehow we can lose part of Him? Can we, can we spill part of Him as we go through life in the same way that we spill a drink. I spill coffee going to my office. You see, it's a wrong understanding of what it means to be filled. This word, to be filled, has at least three different meanings. And I want to show them to you. At least three different meanings, and this will help you in your understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Number one, it has, it's a word, plerao, and it means this. It means... Um, one, one of the meanings is pressure. You ever seen a, a sailboat out on the ocean? And a gust of wind comes along, and that sail just fills, just billows with wind. And, and the, the ship is then pushed along the ocean where the wind drives. There is no wind. It's tough to sail. Well, the issue, the, the picture here of being filled with the Spirit is not as if we are asking God to pour Himself into us to the point where we are running over. Instead, it's the picture of us, the wind of God being blown into us. The Spirit-filled Christian is not carried along by his own desires or his own passions, but he depends on the wind of God, or the wind of the Holy Spirit to direct him. That's what it means to be filled. It means getting up every day of your life and saying, God, today's not my day. God, my life is not my life. My life's yours. God, would you direct me today? You know, it, it's what happened with Phil. When 
the trip to Japan is canceled. Everybody's trip to Japan is canceled because one man, right? Your interpreter couldn't go, which is pretty important, but, you know, but one man couldn't go and, and the whole trip's canceled. And Phil's learned a valuable lesson. God directs us. God directs us where He wants us to go, and we are dependent, and we, we ask God, God, blow in me and direct me, send me where you want me to go. It's how I've ended up here as your pastor. Praying, God, would you have me go there? God, would you show me? God, would you lead me? It's how the search committee came to that. God, would you lead us to the right man? God, would you lead us to find the pastor for your church? It's how many of you came to find the person that you're married to? It's how many of you have come to the job that you're at? Whatever it might be, God, lead me. It's being filled with the Spirit. The second meaning for the word is it's used in a way to mean permeation or to permeate. The uh, illustration I'll give you is um, it's, it's coming upon grilling season. Anybody like to grill? It's one thing to take a piece of meat out there. You just go to the store, you buy it in, in, the, uh, in the butcher's window, and you bring it home, and you just slap it on the grill. It's another thing to take that piece of meat and to prepare And for 24 or 48 hours or 72 hours, let that piece of meat sit in a marinade. And let that marinade so infuse every inch of that piece of meat. Then take that piece of meat and put it on the grill. And grill it to perfection. And you take it off and the flavor is so much better. And that's the picture here is that we would say to God, God, would you so saturate me? Would you permeate me? God, there is nowhere in my life that is off limits from you. And you sit down with God and you say, God, are there areas in my life that I have said no to you in? God, would you come into my life and fill me in such a way that, God, there is nothing that I would hold back from you. And that's what it means here to be filled. Directed, permeated. And the last one is this. It's to be dominated. It's domination. This particular usage in Scripture, when here it talks about people being filled, meaning that they were dominated, it often speaks of their emotions. Oftentimes there were people in Scripture that were filled with anger. The Pharisees, oftentimes, when Jesus would make some claim or do something on the Sabbath they didn't like, they would become filled with rage. They would be dominated. Sometimes there were those that were filled with fear. If you think about the disciples, when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming out to them, they were filled with fear. They were dominated by it. It often speaks of their emotions. You and I know that oftentimes our emotions can get the best of us. Anybody's emotions ever get the best of you? Y'all all quiet and spiritual this morning? Like I'm the only one? If you get up close to me today, you may be able to see it from there. You see this little scratch right here on my forehead? You know how I did that? This past Wednesday night, went home, and I was changing out a toilet. Pastors don't make good plumbers. That's what I learned, okay? So I'm changing out a toilet. 
And I went into the laundry room, and in the laundry room, there's a closet behind the door. And that closet is where I keep some of my tools. So I walked into the laundry room. I was in a hurry because I wanted to get this thing done. And I walked into the laundry room, and I flung the door back, and I was going to reach and pull that door open. What I didn't understand is when I flung this door back, it must have hit my shoe. And so when I turned to get the other door, I ran straight into the door. I wish I could tell you it was something cool, like I was attacked by a bear, you know, or that you could pray for me because my wife is really having issues, you know, or something. But no, I ran into a door. You know what I did when I ran into the door? Well, after I stopped seeing stars... My anger came up. That stupid door. Who put that door there? You know, I'm slamming the door, you know. And my, my emotions got the best of me. And sometimes that happens. Our emotions get the best of us. But the picture here is that when we are filled with the Spirit of God, we ask Him to so dominate us that our emotions never get out of control. We walk in such a way that you can run into a door and keep your emotions in check. And someone can do something to you that you consider unfair and you don't, be, you, you don't become filled with rage. But you want the Spirit of God to dominate in your life. Well, that's what it means to be filled. Then the obvious question that we should run to is if that's what it means for us to be led and saturated and dominated by the Spirit of God, then the obvious question is, how? How do we do this then? If this is a command for us to be in the state of being continually filled, then how? I mean, because this is not the easiest thing just to do. Well, I've written this out, and I think this probably sums it up. I think the way that we are filled with the Spirit of God is through repeated repentance Repeated trust and daily, moment-by-moment, personal, conscientious choosing. It is, it is every day coming to the place, coming to God and saying, God, is there sin in my life? God, I know there's sin there. God, would you show that to me? Would you convince me of what it really is, that it is sin, that I need to be, have it gone from my life? Would you rid me of it? God, would you forgive me of it? And then it's that personal everyday saying, God, today I can do nothing if I'm not connected to you. God, would you keep me close to you? God, would you walk with me? God, would you empower me? God, would you lead me? And then it's this everyday, this choosing to obey. God says for me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. I've got to choose to do that. That's not going to happen naturally particularly during March Madness with all the basketball games on. There's all sorts of commands in Scripture that I, I shouldn't lie. And there comes an opportunity that, oh, it would be so much easier just to tell this little lie. You say, God, I, I want to be filled with your Spirit. God, I want to tell the truth no matter what it costs me. And you choose every day to obey. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology I don't often read the footnotes throughout the whole thing. It is a book that is over a thousand pages. It is thick. 
and I'm reading through it, and to read the footnotes is going to add that much more. But I found this little phrase in, in the footnotes. The footnote on, on page 783, he, write, he writes this. This is a man who is seen as one of the greatest theologians of our time. And in the footnote, he writes this. My student, Jack Mattern, rightly points out that effective teaching on this area must include the need to, number one, yield our lives fully to God. Number two, to depend fully on God for power to live the Christian life. And number three, to obey the Lord's commands in our lives. That we would get up every day and we would, we would yield ourselves to God. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. We are to yield to Him, that we are to present ourselves and say, God, there is nothing that is off limits from you. God, here's my body, here's my mind, here's my emotions. God, I yield everything to you. And then to depend. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's this attitude of this life is not mine anymore. And if I'm going to live, if I'm going to store up treasures in heaven in any way, it will be because he lives in me. Totally dependent on him. And then obedient. 1 John 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Speaking of Jesus. If we say that we are believers, that we are in the family of God, then we also ought to make an effort to be obedient. We ought to obey. The Bible speaks of, and I'll look at that tonight, but the Bible speaks of the fact that, that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in the believer so that you can have life in your mortal bodies, meaning that you can conquer those sins. That you can obey. So church, in this process, in this application of redemption, in what it means to be saved, God will call. He calls through a sermon, a preacher, calls through some gospel invitation. And the first thing is you are regenerated. And upon regeneration, you're converted. You turn from your sin and you turn trusting Christ alone to save you. And when that happens, God responds and he justifies you. He makes you right in the sight of God. He applies the righteousness of Christ to you. Then he adopts you as a son or a daughter into his own family and seats you at his table. And then walks with you and helps you to grow in holiness and is conforming you to the image of Christ as you work out your own salvation. He's working in you to make you like Christ because those who he predestined, he also will conform. He's going to glorify them. And through that process of sanctification, He has put the Spirit within us so that we're not doing it in and of our own strength. 
But there's this process of day by day by day by day where we must be continually in the process of being filled with the Spirit of God. Otherwise, you will slip off into carnality. You will slip, slip off into the flesh. You'll do things in your own strength and you will not grow in holiness. So church, I would encourage you today to be filled with the Spirit. To stop being drunk with wine. Whatever your wine is. Whatever it is that you're depending on more than the Spirit of God. But that every day that you would wake up and you would yield yourself to Him. You would depend on Him completely to obey what He's given us to obey. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is such a vast topic. It feels weird. It feels wrong even to call it a topic because we are talking about you, God. We are talking about the third member of the Trinity. God, I pray that you would help us to understand how incredibly important, how vital, how necessary the Holy Spirit is in our lives. God, that you would also help us to wrap our brains as well as our lives around this issue of being filled with the Spirit. God, help us to stop drinking from the wrong wells. And God, that we would begin to drink deeply and repeatedly from your Spirit. Let us be filled with your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.